So welcome to Grace Church. We're glad you're here. If you're on campus, we are delighted that you're on campus. If you're watching with us online, we are delighted that you're here as well. And today, we're going to be looking at Colossians chapter number 2. So if you brought a device, if you brought your Bible, go ahead and open that up. The the verses will be on the screen. But I just love it when I see you all with uh, taking notes and engaging in in your device because you've got to take this message outside the four walls. It's not just about coming and listening passively. It is about aggressively understanding what God has for your life and then applying that truth to your daily circumstances. So today, Colossians chapter 2, as I said, Paul is writing this section of Scripture from from prison, and uh, he is agonizing. That's what he says in this letter. He agonizes for the church at Colossae, and uh, it is an amazing letter. And so today, we're going to take a look at a couple of different things out of Colossians chapter 1, verses 2 through 6 or 7, somewhere in that area. And uh, so I want to start with this question. What does God want for us? What does he want for us? What does he want to do for us? Even better question, what does God want to do in us? That's what Colossians, I think, addresses. So starting in verse number one, Colossians chapter two, this is what it says. I want you to know how much I have agonized for you and for the church at Laodicea and for the many believers who have never met me personally. So Paul describes himself as strenuously agonizing for himself on behalf of the Christians he has not yet met. These aren't people that are his friends. These are people that are, he's never had a relationship to, and so he now is writing them a letter, and he, he tells them that he is strenuously, he is intensely ministering on their behalf. And the, and the way he's doing that primarily is through the idea of prayer. He's also writing this letter, but the implication is that he's now praying. And what is interesting is, is that if you understand what his agony is, he represents the heart of God in this agony. So this agony becomes God's agony. So this is God's intent for your life. So then we pick it up. So we're answering the question, what does God want for my life? Well, here it is. In chapter 2, verse 2, it says, I want them to be encouraged. Paul is anguishing in prayer so that you and I, these believers, and then you and I can be encouraged. It's such an important thing. When Paul describes his desire to have these people encouraged, he's not talking about the feeling of encouragement. That's fleeting, right? You know, you get up, you get down. He's talking about an encouragement that goes into the depth of your own soul. And encouragement, listen to me very carefully, is a very crucial element in the Christian life. And you've got to learn how to encourage yourself. You have to learn how to bring encouragement to your own soul and to allow God to do it as well. So with that in mind, what I want to do is I'd like you to just close your eyes for a minute and I'd like you to bow your heads. And you know, if you're online, you can just look at me. But here's the deal. I want you, I want you to answer this question honestly. Today when I came to church, Today, when I turn the television on, I'm going to be honest with you, I was a bit discouraged. Anybody like that? Just raise your hand. Just raise as a testimony to Jesus. Yes. You know what? Go ahead and put your hands down. You can look up. And here's what I've realized. This is what I realized both in this service and the one before, is there's a good portion of the body of Christ that are discouraged for, a, for whatever reason. 
There is a host of people that are discouraged. And I'm just going to tell you, that is one of Satan's tools and techniques. He wants to discourage you in every way that he can because if he discourages you, he isolates you. And if he isolates you, he renders you ineffective. So this is a tool of the evil one inside of your life. And uh, I'm just going to tell you how important it is. And I'm going to talk about a little bit about where does encouragement come from and what does it do in our life? So first of all, let's talk about what encouragement does for us. First of all, it provides us energy to accomplish our objective. It gives us the energy. So here's what I've discovered in my own life. When I am discouraged, I don't even like to get out of bed. You know what I mean? When I'm discouraged, I, get a four, I don't have any energy. Anybody else like that? You're all staring at me like, what are you talking about? Okay. When I am discouraged, the fact is, is that every movement is a chore. Everything that I do becomes a difficult thing. And I'm just simply saying that is the, that's what encouragement does for us. It gives us energy. It gives us energy. It also gives us hope. Hope is something so important, and when we are at our lowest, when we tend to withdraw from other people, just because, just because we have the idea of discouragement in our lives. And then thirdly, it helps us change our perspective. When I'm discouraged, here's what I've discovered in my life, is that I don't see things correctly. I look at the same thing somebody else looks at and I see it from my perspective of the eyes that I have of discouragement and I have a completely thwarted view of whatever circumstance is going on around me and other people go you're seeing that I don't see that at all has anybody ever said that to you how could you see it that way it's because you're in a spirit of discouragement and when you're encouraged the fact is is that it changes your perspective and it helps restore your confidence when you're discouraged you lack confidence. You begin to lack confidence in life, and uh, it is just such a destroyer of this confidence. So here locally, for a long time, we used to have a guy by, uh, well, I don't know what his name is, but he, we called him the waiver, and his picture's up there on the screen. And he, you know, this is what he did. Most of the older people probably remember him. He would walk around the streets of Reno and he'd walk between here and Carson and other places. I saw him everywhere. And uh, he would just walk around and he would wave at people and smile. Every car that drove past him, he would wave and smile. A couple of my friends actually, actually uh, talked to him one day and say, hey, do you know Jesus? And, you know, we're just wondering why you, why you walk around and waving, wave at people. And the truth is, he doesn't know Jesus. But he recognizes something that's important in people's lives, and that is the idea of encouragement. That's how important it is. So him, as an unbeliever, if he understands how important encouragement is, then how much more should you and I understand what it is and how we can help others and how we can learn to encourage ourselves when we are down? So where does encouragement come from? How does God... How does encouragement happen? That's a better way to put it. How does encouragement happen? There are two primary ways that encouragement happens. Two primary ways. And we find them in the scripture before for us today. In verse 2, it says, being knit together in love. I pray for you. I, I want you to be encouraged. And then the next phrase is being knit together in love. So how is it that we are knit together in love? Because when my heart is knit together in love with others, the natural process, the natural product of that is encouragement. So how does that happen? How does that happen? 
my heart is knit together with other people when I suffer with them, when I have the same purpose in mind. When you think about a marriage, why are hearts knit together in love inside of a marriage? The answer is because you're sharing a common dream now. That's how, that's how it happens. So when I, when I have the same dream, if I have the same mission, if I have the same purpose as you, what happens is, is that my heart is naturally knit together in love towards you and the, towards other people like you. So I've had the great opportunity of traveling all over the world, and one of my favorite places to go is Russia. Not because I love the weather there, because I don't like the weather at all, uh, but, but what is interesting is that I'll get off a plane, I don't speak much Russian. I speak just a tiny bit, just enough to get myself in trouble. And, uh, but what happens is, is that I'll start meeting with people. We'll use a translator. But without being able to speak a language, because I know they're believers and they know I'm a believer, our hearts are naturally knit together in love. Just simply because we share a common purpose. How does encouragement happen? It happens when I, my heart is knit together with other believers. Uh, the second way is found in verse 2. I want them to have complete confidence that they understand God's mysterious plan, which is Christ himself. In him lies hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Now I want you to think about that. This is just such an amazing truth. If you're discouraged, especially if you, if you are a Christ follower and you're discouraged, let me just speak to you for just a second because this is so important for you to understand. Out of the billions of people on planet Earth, and there are many billions of people on planet Earth, right? And they all come to Walmart at the same time. Out of the billions of people on planet Earth, God has, listen to this, this is mind-blowing. God has chosen you to reveal his mystery to you. And what is that mystery? That mystery is Christ in you, the hope of glory. That he, he joins you with his life. And now you have this kingdom life. And you, out of all the billions of people on this planet, out of all the billions of people that walk this planet, you, God has chosen to reveal this this major mystery of which the angels look on and go, I don't get it. The Old Testament saints, they, would, they, don't under, they didn't understand the mystery that you and I now live in every day, the mystery that God lives in me and I live in him. That's a mystery of the New Testament. A mystery is something not yet revealed. And now God reveals it. Now think about that. That should encourage your soul just to know, just to know that you have been chosen by God and his purpose for you is to reveal to you this amazing, this amazing mystery. So having confidence in that mystery is how I find myself being encouraged. So he wants to encourage me. That's the first thing that I know. So the second thing that God wants for me and in me is he wants me to walk with him. God wants me to walk with him. Verse six says, now, just as you accepted Christ Jesus as your Lord, you must now continue to follow him. Billy Graham says that no man can be said truly to be converted who has not bent his will to Christ. It isn't about praying a prayer. Christianity is not about, you know, coming to a church service, going to a crusade, going somewhere and getting on my knees and praying a prayer. That's not what it is. It's about bending my knee to the, to the work of Jesus in my life. And once that has happened, I now have a lifestyle of following him. 
That's, what, that's the nature of what Christianity is all about. And there are four dimensions to this walk. There are four dimensions that God reveals to us in Colossians chapter number two. Four dimensions of this walking with Jesus. So just so we're clear, God's will and God's intent for you, first of all, is that you not be discouraged. The second thing that he wants for your life, that he wants to do in you and through you, is he wants you to walk with him every day. Not on again, not off again, not one day when I feel like it and the next day I don't. It is a 24-7 thing. Jesus wants you to follow him, to walk with him. So if that's the case, how then do I walk with God? Four dimensions. The first one is found for us in verse 7. And uh, it says this, having been firmly, notice this next word, rooted. God wants you to be rooted in him. Now, in the Greek text, this is a perfect passive participle, which means you don't need to remember that, but what you need to understand is in the Greek, this is how it literally would read, having, I was firmly rooted, I am being firmly rooted, and I will continue to be firmly rooted. This is a work from God. It's in the passive sense. Tense. So this is a work of God in your life. So this is what God does in your life. He firmly roots you exactly where you need to be. Your job, your job is to remain in him. Your job is to take the nutrients of the soil that God has placed you in and let them strengthen you and minister to you and encourage you. So the idea is that I take advantage of the soil and all that God has me in. Now there are two thoughts here. First of all, roots have to be strong enough to support the structure of the tree, right? And secondly, the soil has to be, has to be just right. So those two things is what God has done for you. He's given you the right root system and he's given you the right soil and now your job is to soak it up every day. To walk with him means that I am being rooted in him. The fastest and, uh, and oldest uh, tree around in this country is the giant sequoia. And they're the oldest, they're the strongest, they, are, they, have, the, they have the best root system. And what is interesting about this, these great trees is that they have a secret that maybe we should learn from. And that secret is simply this, is the sequoia trees not only take advantage of the soil that they're planted in, they tie their roots one to another. That's why they grow so strong. So being rooted means being rooted with not only God, but being rooted with others. So foundations are crucial for our strength. Would you agree with that? So with that in mind, cynics, when they, when said of the Empire State Building, when it was being constructed, that they could not build a structure 102 stories high. But the engineers said that there, there's virtually no limit as that, as that, is, there's no limit to how high it can be as long as the foundation is deep enough and strong enough. So when you are planted in Jesus Christ, you are rooted in him, you can be all that God wants you to be. You can do anything God has called you to do. So the first principle, how do I walk with Jesus? I'm being rooted in him. Second, I'm built up in him. Verse seven, being built up in him. This is allowing his life to flow through our life. Not only am I rooted, but now I let the nutrients of that soil come up through my life, overflowing unto other people. So let me see if I can unpack it to you this way. Juice, when you go into the juice aisle of any, any grocery store, juice comes in two kinds. Juice flavored, 
or juice filled. So when you walk down the aisle, you read the label and you go, oh, you know, it has, you know, it has ingredients of juice in it, but that doesn't mean there's hardly any juice there. It's either juice filled or it is juice flavored. So when it comes to the two types of Christians in the world, listen to this very carefully, little convicting here, there are two types of Christians in the world. That, uh, well, two types of people who call themselves Christians. Let me put it that way. The first kind is Jesus-flavored, and the second kind is Jesus-filled. Which kind are you? Jesus-filled or Jesus-flavored? So that's the idea of being built up in him. When I'm being built up in him, Christ overtakes my life. I am filled with Jesus. And out of that, I grow into this amazing child of God. So I'm rooted in him. I'm established or built up in him. And then thirdly, the third way that I walk with Jesus is that I'm established in the faith. So let's unpack that for just a minute. Verse 7 says, established in the faith, just as you were taught. I want you to notice something here. There's a definite article here. So it's not that I'm established in a faith. He's not talking about faith as a characteristic. He's talking about something very specific called the faith. So what does he mean by that? So I'm going to suggest that the faith, every time it's used in the New Testament, is used concerning the body of truth that associates itself with the gospel. That's considered in the New Testament the truth. So I'm supposed to be established in the truth if I'm going to walk with Jesus on a regular basis. So God, this is good, God does not move us beyond the gospel. He moves us more deeply into the gospel. If you consider yourself a mature Christian, every day you saturate yourself with the truth of the gospel. You go deeper into the gospel because all of the power we need in order to change and mature comes through the gospel. And you know what's fascinating is, is um, I find myself all the time having conversations with people and people will tell me, you know, I left, I left the, I'm, I'm coming to Grace now and I left my last church because all they talked about was the gospel. And I'm thinking, duh, that's exactly what we're supposed to be talking about. The gospel established in the faith. That's the body of truth that's going to change my life. And the more I mine it, the more I understand it. And the truth is, is that when you, when you think of the gospel, the death, the burial, and the resurrection is the simplest form of the gospel. But the gospel has such amazing, life-changing implications as you begin to grow in your understanding of all the facets of what the gospel represents. So real change cannot be sustained without the gospel. The gospel does not just simply ignite the Christian. It is the fuel that keeps us going and plugging along. It is absolutely amazing, the gospel of Jesus Christ. So if I'm going to walk with Jesus, here's what I've got to do every day. Listen to me carefully. If I'm going to walk with Jesus, I've got to preach the gospel to myself daily. I, that's what I've got to do. I've got to remind myself every day of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it, when I do that, it's such an amazing thing. It is, is mind-blowing of what God will do in your life when you are saturating yourself, your mind and your heart and your soul with the gospel 
of Jesus Christ. So I'm rooted in him. How do I walk with Jesus? I am rooted in him. I'm built up in him. I'm established in the faith. And then fourthly, I am overflowing with gratitude. Verse seven says, abounding, abounding in thanksgiving. That is such an amazing statement. Now, I'm not talking about every once in a while I have this emotional feeling. It's Thanksgiving time. I know I'm supposed to thank God. I'm not talking about that kind of Thanksgiving. I'm talking about the gratitude that lives in your life every day that flows out of a life that's connected to God. That's the kind of gratitude that changes a life. I am to be, I'm to be overflowing, grounded, flowing on other people, the idea of thanksgiving and gratitude in my life. And I'm gonna tell you, it is the remedy for so much of the ailment that you and I have. It is the remedy for much of our anxiety and depression. Our world, I, I just, you know, honestly, I had a meeting with the mayor this last week, and she was telling me that, that, uh, that honestly, one of the number one problems they're having in the city is that this city is exploding with anxiety and depression exploding with it, with anxiety and depression. And I'm simply saying, we have a tool here. If I'm gonna walk with Jesus, if I'm gonna walk with him, I've got to learn how to abound in thanksgiving because there's something that happens in my mind when I do that. I'll get to that in just a second. I wanna tell you about a, a guy by the name of Kevin Kling. He was a guy that was born with a handicap. His left arm was handicapped, couldn't, it was shorter than it was supposed to be. And when he was 40 years old, he was involved in a motorcycle crash and it paralyzed his right arm. So now he has no movable limbs that function in the right way. And he says, while I was in rehab, I learned the three phases of prayer. And here's the first phrase, phase. The first phase of prayer is, I wanna get things from God. God, can I have this? I like a new house, I like a new car, I like a new toy, I like a new bike, I like this, I like that. And that's the first phase of prayer. And God tells us to pray for our daily bread. It's not a bad thing, it's just not complete. It's the first phase. We learn to trust God as we learn to ask for those things. But there's a second phase of prayer, and the second phase of prayer is I pray that God, that you would get me out of things. Like, God, I'm, I'm in depression right now. I'm in anxiety. I'm, would you please deliver me? I've got cancer. My house is being foreclosed. God, would you just deliver me? Or I, I have this oppression going on in my life. Some way I've got, I've got problems and struggles on my job. And we're always praying that, God, would you please deliver me from those things or at least deliver me through those things. And that's not a bad prayer either. But it's incomplete. The third phase in prayer is when I learn to give thanks to God in every circumstance. And that's where really God wants us to be. The third phase of prayer is abounding. And when we get there, it is an amazing place to be because did you know that thanksgiving and gratitude activate the part of the brain where dopamine, dopamine is transmitted? And that's the feel-good drug. So it actually has a physical benefit when I learn how to be overjoyed and flowing in thanksgiving in every day of my life. That's so amazing. It reduces anxiety. 
It lifts you out of depression. When I learn how in every circumstance to give thanks. Not, I'm not saying, God, thank you that I broke my arm. I'm saying, thank you, God, that you're good. I'm, th I'm thanking you in that circumstance for what you're doing in my life because you've got something planned for me. That's what I thank God for. So yesterday, my wife had to take, make a quick uh, trip to Battle Mountain, Nevada, out at, you know, out Interstate 80. And, and I dro dropped her off Thursday night and then I came back and picked her up Saturday. And when I was going up, to, up the freeway, somewhere in the desert out in eastern Nevada, I was driving nearly the speed limit, maybe just a little bit over. You know, who knows? I'm telling the story. It's my story. It's a little bit over, maybe five miles an hour. And uh, so I pull out to go around a truck. And uh, I looked in my rearview mirror, and there's a car way behind me. And I thought, I have plenty of time to get around this truck before he catches up. What I didn't realize is he was going about 100 miles an hour. And so he gets right up on my bumper. And he, he's literally five feet away. We're, dri I'm dr we're now driving. I've slowed him down because we're driving 85. He's right on my bumper. In fact, I speed up, probably up to 90. Just, you know, I'm trying to get around this truck so this guy doesn't run me over. And so I pull off. I mean, pull, pull around the truck. And uh, immediately, well, I'm just going to be honest. He flips me off. And then he, he did it once, and then he, he, that wasn't good enough. He turns around and does it again. Like, I want you to know, buddy, how really intensely I'm angry at you. I want you to know that. And, you know, my heart is starting to pound a bit because this guy's angry. And, uh, and then he pulls over, and he jumps out of his car and runs around to the other side, and I'm going, okay, I talk about Jesus and I'm going to heaven all the time, so this might be the day. Thank you, Jesus. And, uh, you know, my heart's racing and I'm thinking, you know, I'm about 30 miles from my destination. I'm going, how do I get there? And, you know, this guy is out of, he's obviously out of control in his anger. And so I immediately just started thanking God. Overflowing with thanksgiving in my heart. Actually praying for him. But then with thanksgiving. And my anxiety levels just came down to where they were almost normal. And then I thought, well, maybe he doesn't know who I am. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. That was just a joke. That was just a joke. But I'm just simply saying there is amazing benefits to learning how to go to the third phase of prayer, which is abounding in thanksgiving. So here is the million-dollar question. How do you have that kind of gratitude when life is so hard, right? You have a hard life. I, I'm, sure, I'm sure many of you might have an easy life, but there's people here that struggle every day with their existence. They have a hard life. How do you get to the place in your life where you have gratitude, overflowing joy, overflowing gratitude and thanksgiving inside of your life? How do you get there? And the answer to that question is not complicated. It's actually pretty simple of how you get there. And that is a fundamental decision every day before you get out, out of bed, before you put your feet on the floor, a fundamental decision that says, I believe that God is worthy. 
out of my fundamental confession of the worthiness of God in every circumstance, here's what it does. When I begin to proclaim the worthiness of God, it shifts my focus from me to God. And then I'm freed to be overjoyous in whatever circumstance that I'm in because now it's not about me anymore. It's not about me anymore. It's just not about me. It's about Him. And I got a clue for you. All of heaven today, all of heaven today is declaring the worthiness of Jesus Christ. It's just earth that doesn't do it. Even, even, even the creation, even though it's groaning, is declaring the glory of God. And so it's learning the discipline of in every circumstance declaring your belief in the worthiness of Jesus Christ. Is He worthy? Is He worthy? Is He worthy in your life? Is He worthy, of, is he worthy in the bad days for you to serve Him when you don't feel like it? Is He worthy? It shifts the focus, my friends. It is a game changer because when it, you, your, your focus is shifted from you to God, things in the heavens happen. Such a powerful tool that God has given to us and such an important thing for you to hear that every day, and I, I have a practice every day that I get up before my wife and I go into my living room and I bow before God and I declare that He is worthy. You're worthy, O oh God. Every day, I declare His worthiness. And what that does is it takes the edge off of whatever pain that I'm in or whatever circumstance that I'm in. It takes that edge off of it because it shifts my focus to Him. He is worthy. He's absolutely worthy. He's completely worthy. He's worthy of me serving Him and loving Him. He is worthy. It's really really the, probably one of the most important things that you could ever do is start declaring God's worthiness. And then realize, once you start doing that, you know what you realize? You realize how unworthy you are of receiving His grace. And yet He's chosen you. And so it's such a beautiful thing. It's a beautiful thing. And if there's anything that you could start doing that would make a difference in your life, immediate difference in your life, there's one thing you could do every day is start proclaiming the worthiness of God. Out loud. Not in your heart. Out loud. With your lips. With your lips. That He is worthy. So much so that when you start believing it, it will begin to affect a culture in your life that changes your behavior. And isn't that what you want? You want to be better at what you do? Well, it starts with a shift of focus. It's not about you. It's not about you. It's about Him. And my prayer, in this holy moment that God has brought you here for, if you're watching online, same, online, same thing, is that you'll understand how this one thing, my prayer is that you'll see how this one thing can create a culture for you that is a game changer. Father, open our eyes so we might see your worthiness in a new and fresh way. And I pray these things in Jesus' holy 
and powerful and awesome name. Amen.